Future Hacker. Life. Path. Future. Welcome back, everybody. This is the second episode with John Rainford and Miriam Hashemi for Future Hacker. I'm your host, Maria Taigi. So let's move on. We have so, so much to cover. Okay, so, you know, on the last episode, we ended up talking about the educational model, and then we moved to future of work, and we got into behavior science. So let's let's try to, to go a little deeper into some parts of it. And I was totally going to mention that it's not only about completely redefining the way we learn, but also the future of work and the relationship between the employees and employers are definitely changing, right? And in my view, totally for the better. We are moving from a system that it was hierarchical and, and people really couldn't be giving their opinion openly. So what's your view about the evolution of our professional lives and how should we be preparing our children for that? I think we all are aware that employer-employee attitudes are changing. And, and um, as you remarked earlier, Maria, we don't even know what jobs are, are going to be in the near future, you know, in five years' time. And I think it's been acknowledged by the World Economic Forum that um, the sort of skill sets will be more entrepreneurial and creative. And so why this isn't necessarily brought into schools I'm a little bit surprised that it's not to the extent that it ought to be. Um, I think that myself and, and Miriam are, I don't know, pioneering this sort of work within industry with a view to not necessarily, you know, bringing the children up in a way that they're more completely employee-minded, but certainly if they're more creative and adaptable, then they're going to be more employable. So there's a lot of the, the, the old system is not really working for, the, you know, the new generation. And I think that that's now needs to be addressed. And I think employers know this, you know, are much more aware that uh, we need to create much more capable uh, employees. Happy to be there. Yeah, I, I, I think part of it, Maria, is that with the... Uh shift from the industrial revolution and, you know, creating a workforce that was compliant and, you know, could work in a factory and turn out widgets at a certain rate. We're moving toward this idea of purpose and meaning and value and impact, taking center stage in all facets of our lives. And I think the pandemic really provided an opportunity for a collective, you know, meditation and introspective pause of, you know, are we living our best life? Or do, do we have purpose and meaning that we find aligned with what we're doing? And you see this shift around the future of work related to technology, also related to, you know, how humans are evolving and how we're changing. And you see these patterns and trends in parenting as well. You know, centuries ago, children were vital members of the community. And uh, we spoke about this, Maria, earlier around, you know, parenting norms, where certain things that were highly acceptable, you know, centuries ago are, are, are deemed as, you know, shocking in today's world. And then in tomorrow's world, there's this cyclical trend of what, what comes back. And I think part of that is related to multi-generational workforces and multicultural 
workforces. And so there's an increase in the future of work being aware of how different generations interact with technology, how they interact with each other. And so tech adoption is a huge part of change initiatives and digital transformations in a lot of enterprises. And this is directly related to generational relationships with technology. And so younger generations seem to adapt more readily and easily to new technology. And I think this is part of something that we we also need to be aware of as transformational leaders. And I think there's a lot of other pockets of people, you know, working on developing the next generation to be comfortable with complexity, ambiguity, with the unknown, with understanding that we might have to repivot. And I think all of these concepts are related to becoming better human beings. And I think that's the crux of what John and I are trying to work on. And what drives us is how do we become better people collectively, individually? And I think there's a lot of wonderful people doing some of this work with children. You know, Esther Wojcicki, I think, is is one of them in terms of looking at how we build agency with children and those intrinsic motivators to, to have that love of learning and that curiosity. And I think that's directly related to a motivated workforce and the concept of entrepreneurship coming into organizations as intrapreneurship and really fostering that sense of agency so that if you see there's an issue that you can bring it up and come forth with a solution. And I think these are all related to you know vulnerable leadership, the various forms and manifestations of leadership. So situational leadership, contextual leadership, and creative leadership, as opposed to reactive leadership, which, you know, I think we have been seeing a lot of during the pandemic, where we're not really sure how this thing is going to evolve, because the notion of certainty has gone out of the window. And so how do we adapt? And how do we become comfortable with pivoting? And I think what's really interesting is how the arts are related to this. So for example, things like theater and improv and being able to think on the spot, that's one of the traits that I think, as John mentioned, you know, the World Economic Forum in terms of the future skills for a future thriving workforce is this idea of being able to pivot readapt, think on our feet, the creative thinking and the critical analysis also tied into with mindfulness and mindfulness-based stress management techniques that are related to breathing. You know, we haven't been taught how to breathe. There's a whole, there's thousands of years of human thought and practice on breathing techniques. I think one of the things that we're seeing now is that meditation and mindfulness is being taught to children as young as, you know, two, three. And I think these are all very healthy coping skills that tie into a healthy, thriving society. So I think the future of work is something that we're going to be co-creating together. And I think that co-design involves creating seats at the table, as we're seeing with some global movements for you know, different voices to have representation and to have, you know, a place to participate in this dialogue. And I think it it speaks to that changing notion of hierarchy, you know, flattening the structure in a way that doesn't threaten the end goal, which I think at the end of the day is somewhat universal. I think, you know, humans are all striving to have a sense of 
contentment, fulfillment, and this pursuit of happiness or uh, whatever else it may be. I wonder, Maria, what, what, what do you think? You know, I was... <laughs> We, we have very similar views, uh, Miriam and John. Uh, you know, when you say it's about collaboration and when you talk about, I, I think at the end, we are talking about being more humans, right? Be able to, to, to have first a deeper sense of ourselves, right? And a deeper connection to our souls and to everything that is around us. When you mention nature, when you mention arts and the impact that we have not only in our own lives, but on everybody that is around us. And I think that when we are talking about, oh, ESG and how companies need to be more responsible and how companies should do a better impact in the world, we're actually are talking about ourselves, and what we should be doing about that, right? Yes, absolutely, Maria. And I think, you know, John and I are working with organizations, for example, you know, most recently with thousands of employees on the idea of a return to work and what that means for the immediate present of changing behaviors and addressing some of the concepts around change, which are related to, you know, fear of the unknown, fear of failure, fear of loss, and the fear of not having this certainty in our lives. And I think some of these things, as I, you know, as I think we all agree, are, are deeply rooted in the way that we've been socialized and we've been raised. And there's an opportunity for us to shift the conversation and to shift the ground that we're standing on for future generations so that there is a sense that the world is a playground. There is a sense that you know, the future is what you can imagine. If you think about all of the movers and shakers throughout, you know, the course of human history, all of the wildest ideas came from imagination. And so that imagination is directly and deeply tied into the arts. And when we look at how we have representation of the arts in enterprise and in business, there's a lot of time and energy and money spent on marketing and logos and branding. And what organizations are seeing now is that the workforce is also hungry to participate in that creative endeavor. And those are the shifts that John and I are working on. For example, later today, we're going to be working with, with an organization with thousands of people who are going through this process of a return to work. How do we socialize the idea, but also address the emotional undertones? How do we create a leadership culture that is truly open to listening to some of the ideas that are coming, not just top down, bottom up from the sides? And I think this in and of itself creates a transformation that becomes more of a movement. And that movement is, I think, what you're speaking about, the evolution of what it means to be a human Yes, exactly. I absolutely love those insights. Thank you so much. Um, I'd like, you know, to cover now behavior science. And um, believe it or not, this is still something relatively new in Brazil. I know that it's very developed in the UK. I'm not sure um, about Canada, how long, you know, it's been incorporated, especially by large companies 
tech giants. And there's this movement that they're creating in-house specialists to understand consumer behavior and implement strategies to create, you know, increase consumption. So I, I actually, I'd like to cover this in two points. Like a behavior science is a powerful, powerful tool for social impact, right? So when we understand what drives people, the brain mechanisms in which we are not even aware of, how to address behavior change for good is such a great um, ally, you know, for to drive change to a better and more inclusive future. But likewise, you know, and as anywhere, we still see behavior science being used for bad. The famous, you know, nudges versus the sludges. You know, so I'd love to understand your point of view for both, you know, the good side and this bad side. As everything we do in life, like all new technologies is going to have both. And we think here, Future Hacker is always important to be covering both fields. Well, um, I can talk to that behavioral science aspect. We are working with some neuroscientists trying to understand. It's relatively young science. A lot of advertising agencies are trying to, if you like, understand it far deeper way so that they can motivate consumers. But the reality is, is the consumers now are, to some extent, having the upper hand and they're just you know, dictating the way they're communicated to. But there is a, a lot of underlying, probably the emphasis on underlying uh, nudges that may encourage people to either purchase particular goods through the augmented value of, of Google. And I think that there is huge amounts, huge questions, ethical questions about how we do use behavioral science in a way that's manipulating the population and I think the, the crucial things of the future are transparency as much as possible, certainly about intent of the way the you know the data is used. These are a lot of questions that we, we need to be addressing um, as a society. And I, I don't think that it should be confined to politicians. I think features should be determined by a collaborative collective intelligence where people do can express their views on ethical values, for example. So there's still a huge debate about behavioral science and how it's used to manipulate people. But at the same time, there's no point in putting our heads in the sand. I think we need to be super aware. And I think part of the, the dialogue should be about awareness and helping our children to become much more aware of better decision-making based on factual information as opposed to subjective information. And again, those, all of these things are up for debate, but there is um, strikes at the core of our educational facility where we're fed doctrines that not, aren't necessarily challenged. So I think there's a, there's a lot of questions around behavioral science. Absolutely. And I think part of it is, you know, developing this ethical compass and moral imperative around what it means for human control, because that's been something that, you know, has been a, a staple throughout human civilization from dynasties, empires, and since the early dawn of, of human civilization has been this idea of, you know, how do we control human behavior, but also how do we manipulate human behavior, whereas the conversation is moving toward how do we cultivate the best human behavior. And so for humans to be able to make decisions in large groups, we need some of the 
deeper understandings and culturally sensitive research and understandings around how the brain works, how human psychology works, but also how, you know, groups of people work together and what conditions create opportunities for for people to develop this collective intelligence. And I think technology offers both a blessing and a curse. And I think there's, as you said, technology isn't it's neither good or bad. It's what we do with it and the implications. And that's where I believe John and, and I agree that systems thinking about the impact, you know, of how we introduce things that seemingly solve, you know, immediate problems and, and what impact it has longer term. For example, when cell phones and laptops and iPads and different devices were introduced, there were no guidelines as to what the implication or the impact was for children and young children, babies, you know, toddlers. Yet there were some very smart people working on understanding how dopamine and endorphin and neurochemicals respond to novel, you know, dings of new emails, new information, and the sheer amount of data that we're generating to the point that the people who are designing these things were, were not allowing their own children to use the devices. And I think that's where we come to the crossroads of, you know, we're renegotiating social contract. I think all of us. And I think that ethical compass and moral imperative is a conversation that's going to become more critical as we explore, you know, human computer interfaces. For for example, Neuralink and, you know, there's contact lenses now that have a digital computer component and there's different ways, you know, in, in some countries, employees are being implanted with chips so that they can have automatic entry. And I think some of these questions are highly, you know, the bioethical and they're neuroethical. And I think we're going to see a boom in terms of people wanting to explore these as we deal with the impact. And so part of what John and I are trying to do is to have that strategic foresight and to work with executives and leaders in industry who want to be leaders in the frontiers of data innovation, the frontiers of biotechnology, and understanding the change and the need for a different way of seeing how we're all interconnected. A lot of these cutting edge advanced technologies come from deep space exploration in the military industrial complex. And then we adapt them for, you know, educational purposes and for leadership. And so part of the question for us becomes, how do we create technologies that have value for everybody in the long term? And how do we develop the competency to be able to have the strategic foresight to think about the ethical implications of some of the technologies that we're using, even for things as simple as gaming? You know, there's a diagnostic manual for mental health. And in the past, gaming addiction wasn't there over the past few years. It's been added in. And there's a lot of people you know, struggling with it. There's a lot of executives struggling with always being on, always in this fast-paced environment, and it's having detrimental impact on our mental health and well-being. And so we're seeing a lot of solutions to deal with the mental health impact. So, you know, access to therapists and, you know, yoga at work and all these other different, what I consider potentially as band-aid solutions, whereas the root 
cause of the problem is looking at how we've organized and structured our organization and our relationship with each other in technology. You know, and that's exactly why we thought about, you know, doing Future Hacker, because there's so much that needs to be discussed. And, you know, we're evolving so fast. Technology is evolving in this crazy speed in which both education and legislation are not catching up. So we need to have healthy debates. We need to discuss ethics and inclusion. And, and this can't really happen without the education piece. And, you know, I don't want to sound pessimistic, especially because I'm not. <laughs> and, but the way that humanity operates today Today is not working as much as we are seeing the change and we're seeing the change in the, the coming generations. And that's actually what's going to drive a new educational model and, and working relationship and how we are dealing with nature. But, you know, when we're talking about our generation and what's happening today, the, the way we're educated, the incentives we're given, the values are at least. So there's this urgent need of paradigm shift, in my opinion. So my last question to you, to both of you, is how could we change human behavior at scale? Like, so we could drive the path to this more sustainable and inclusive society. I think if we want a com compassionate future, which... Um is beneficial to humankind we have to start you know in kindergarten we need to create a culture of uh, empathy and compassion if we want compassionate decision making if we want ethics to be part of our culture i think we need to introduce this at a very early age typically when children get older their creativity gets somehow crushed through the educational system it needs to be in fact increased or helped to be to increase so there's, there's a greater propensity for pioneering work and and innovation in all parts of society and particularly entrepreneurial thinking which could be introduced quite an early age like you know um, financial literacy for example where you can manage your own um, costings and so forth just simple things you know should be taught I think in schools, at least helping young people to determine their own well-being, you know, crucial to all of our well-being. If, if there's a, a culture where that's encouraged, then we're going to create better societies. To me, that's pretty much self-evident, but needs to be introduced at a reasonably early age. But what do you think, Maryam? Absolutely, John. I think it's also, you know, changing human behavior at scale is understanding that right now, you know, the historical context of our times, we're entering a phase of polarization. Technology has created this, you know, Google worldview where the algorithms are determining our access to information and to break free of these epistemic bubbles that we find ourselves in and to hold space for, for dialogue and for deep dialogue with deep listening. And so listening skills, you know, in terms of being able to quiet the mind and to really be able to, you know, enter somebody else's reality. I think these are some of the positive aspects of potential, you know, VR and AR. And I think really for, for me, it starts 
early, early in utero, you know, the understanding that we have access to nutritional foods for the development of healthy connectomes in our brains and understanding that access to nature is a part of that. And all of these things are related also to, you know, how we design cities and the architecture. If we have mixed housing where we have multi-generational and diverse uh, populations living together, we know that neuroscience has shown babies as early as six months develop a sense of in-out groups. So there's an othering that happens. And it all depends, you know, these in-out groups were created for our survival and they're part of, you know, the reptilian brain. You know, we have our amygdalas and we're just understanding how to kind of, I wouldn't say hack, but to curate the way that we can be in relationship with the way our synapses and our neural connectivity can be changed by our own volition. And so this frees us of some of the you know, bondages that we might have had as uh, hereditary barriers or systemic barriers. And I think this provides us with an opportunity, as you said, for inclusion and to have this evolution of the future we'd like to imagine. And I think part of that requires a look and time at what healthy civilizations could be, because I think we have a lot of examples of what they are not, and we need more examples of science fiction that provides a vision we can strive toward. And that's why I love the concept of future hacker that talks about, you know, for me, at least it connotes this agency of developing children's ability to see a reality beyond what we've been able to provide. And really, there's this innate wisdom that children have. They have access to this ethereal realm of, uh, and this deep pool of collective knowledge, energy, and Without sounding too esoteric, I think businesses are tapping into that. And I think leaders are tapping into that. And you can sense when you're in a room with creative flow. You know, I think we've entered that space, perhaps in this dialogue, where I'm feeling like there's a profound connection to some of these deep topics where there's a there's a vibration that happens. And these are related to physics. These are concepts related to strategic planning processes. And these are things that will continually evolve. And so I'm hopeful for the future. And I'm hopeful that conversations such as this and you're holding space for dialogue like this, we'll be able to touch and impact and inspire not just your listeners, but also people like us who have had the privilege of joining you today. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. Thank you, Mayring. It was a real, real pleasure to have you both on the show today. And thanks, everybody else, for listening. Future Hacker. Life. Path. Future. Future.